Um, welcome, my name is Luke. If you uh, perhaps don't know me, my name is Luke. And um, I, uh, I am foreign, I'm from South Africa. <laughs> Slowly but surely, we will. We will, we'll infiltrate. It's a great privilege for me to speak this morning. I'm one of the, uh, the elders here at Hope Church, and it's a real privilege for me to serve as part of an eldership, as to serve this church. I love Hope Church so much. I've, I've been a part of this church for a number of years now, and, and I just love being a part of you, and I love being a part of what God is calling us into. When we have conversations as, as an eldership and we, we talk about what God's doing in the world and, and, and in us as individuals, but also in the church, we are so excited about what he has for us, and I'm really excited to be a part of this community. Um, we, we're continuing this morning our series, God-Centered Community, and, and the title of my talk this morning is uh, A Call to Build Community. Now, we will probably all know and agree that God is, is for community, that God desires community, that it's his design. I don't think that'll come as news to you, but I wanted to start in that particular place, that God's desire is for community. We're looking at the story of Exodus and the Israelites being called out of Egypt into the promised land, and it's the establishing of a phrase we, we will hear a lot of and that is my people or, or God's people. But the story of God sort of calling a people, designing this community, doesn't start really in Exodus. It starts long before that. And it starts probably in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, the Lord, uh, the, uh, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Now, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, outside of time, all those things, but he's also this thing that we call the Trinity. And it's one of those crazy things that we will probably never fully be able to explain or fully understand, whereby God is one, but also three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God. So God, by nature, is already in community. And so when, they, when he says, let's make mankind in our image, he is designing mankind to live already from the start in community, in community with each other for those around them, but in community with him as well. In Ephesians 1 verse 4 and 5, it says this, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes, and we'll get to that a little bit later. In verse 5, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. It gave him great pleasure. Community is God's desire. Community brings God great pleasure. So we see right in the beginning, man is created and there's this community that God has for us. And then we know man falls and that community with God is broken. And suddenly the way to commune and walk with God is, is broken. And it says this in Genesis 3 verse 8, Then the man and his wife, that's Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from him, from the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. They've just fallen, they've just eaten the fruit, they've just been separated, and they hide. But the Lord God called to man, 
Where are you? I want to propose to you that a God who knows everything knows where Adam and Eve are. But he still, in his love and in his grace and in his mercy, calls to them and invites them, where are you? There's an invitation still today that God would say, where are you? I'm calling you. I want to walk with you. He came to walk with them in the garden. He came to have community with them. And despite their sin and their failing, his, his immediate response wasn't rejection, but it was to call, where are you? Before this, God had already declared of Adam that it is not good for man to be alone. So he has already told us that he wants us to live in community with each other. Community is God's plan, it's his desire to have a people who love and live for him and each other. Community is God's best for us. Community is about us building towards each other and about us building towards him. That's true community. If you don't know Jesus today, I believe there's an invitation for you. Where are you? Come, I want to commune with you. I want to have relationship with you. I want you to be in my community. And it's not just community with me, but it's community with others as well. I've designed community for you to live in. Julian Adams is a prophetic guy from, from, from South Africa. Um, now lives in America. He's quite well known amongst New Frontiers. And, and he puts it this way. I have found that people who try and follow the call of God but refuse to do it in community often end up shipwrecked. The call, of, the call of God can never be accomplished in and of itself without community. You need people in your life to blow wind in your sails, encourage you along the way, and you also need people in your life who can help you stay the course, pointing out your blind spots. We are designed to live in community with him and with each other. So, man falls and we see sin into the world and we are separated, but God's response then isn't to reject us and push, it away, push us away, but instead he initiates phase one of his great call to, to, to create a people or a community. And we see this start in Genesis chapter 12, verse one. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. God is calling now a people unto himself. And we can see as we follow the story through the Old Testament, it's, this, it's God calling this people unto himself, separating a people out for himself. And it, and it culminates with Jesus on the cross, that as he dies and as he sheds his blood, he then breaks open a way for us to experience the intimacy of community with Jesus once again in a way that wasn't experienced before. That, that communion with Adam that he had, that he could walk in the garden with him where Adam was sinless and, and shameless, suddenly we can experience that again because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. There is still this call, though, to come out so while there is this amazing invitation to come into the community of God, there's also this call to come out. He says to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household. When I left South Africa many years ago, there was a moment whereby I walked through Border Patrol and my passport was stamped to say that I had left South Africa. And then, plane, and I arrived here, and then... 
I walk through border control, and there's a new stamp in my passport that says I now am here. I'm now a resident of this country. I had to leave somewhere before I was able to enter somewhere. And so the government that I was under when I left South Africa was no longer a government that had any hold on me because I wasn't there anymore, I was here. So there was a government that I now lived under here. And Jesus' blood is that stamp. Jesus' blood is that thing that transfers us from a world of sin and death and allows us to enter into a kingdom of heaven, enter into a kingdom of life. You know, this thing, I don't really have time for it this morning, but this thing of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is, is something that Jesus talks about probably the most. It's a phrase that he uses so often. Uh, apparently, I haven't done this research myself, I must admit, so if it is inaccurate, I do apologize. 53 times the phrase kingdom of God appears in the New Testament, almost always said by Jesus. And the similar phrase, the kingdom of heaven, appears 32 times in the Gospel of Matthew alone. The kingdom, we are invited into a kingdom. It's a, it's a community, it's a kingdom, it's a family, it's a culture that is outside of our normal culture, our normal country, our normal family, our normal community. We are called into something and very often we have to leave something first to get into there. In this series that we're doing, I was given a section of text to speak from. It's the story of Moses and the, the burning bush. And, and in uh, chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 4, it says, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, that's at the bush, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Notice God is calling Moses. That's what God does. He calls us. He invites us. And Moses says, here I am. Do not come any closer, God says. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Just like Adam, Moses' response to being called by God is to hide. Why is this? As we look at the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and this establishment of, of God's people, his, his chosen people, his chosen community, we see what it means to serve a holy God. We see it in things like the Ten Commandments. These are the rules you have to follow in order to follow me. We see it in some of the sacrifices that were required in the Old Testament, the way the detailing of the tabernacle and led to the temple. There were requirements for us to, to experience and encounter God. And Moses has this encounter with God, and maybe at, in that moment he is reminded that he is a murderer, that he is a failure. Maybe it's just he is overwhelmed with awe and amazement at how holy and amazing God is. I'm not really sure, but we see this reaction, this fear. There's another story in the Old Testament of a man being called to lead God's people. Uh, and he, we see a very similar reaction, a similar encounter. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah has an encounter with God. And in verse 5 he says, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king 
the Lord Almighty. He has the same reaction, woe to me, I am unclean, I am unworthy. I don't know how we see God. I don't know how we respond and react to him. There's a phrase um, that a guy called Bobby Connor has used a lot, and it's one that stuck with me for quite a while that I've, I've really been thinking about, and it's this. It says, the church is far too familiar with a God we barely know. I don't know that, you know, when you gather to pray, when you gather just as family, when you gather here on a Sunday morning, what our responses to God are. Do we come with our list of demands and ideas and being overwhelmed by the things that we want to see and what we need in that moment? Is our first reaction to God, I want this and I need this and I don't like that? Or is it a a response of God, you're so holy and you're so worthy? We say, maybe, I certainly say, that we want to experience more of God. These men had an experience with God. And very often we preface that experience with our conditions, our agenda. Another person said it this way, some of you may have removed your offering and replaced it with a list of demands where covenant was forgotten and replaced with what's convenient. Do we sometimes forget who God actually is, the holiness that is required when we come and we meet with him. And you might say, yes, but Luke, you've, you've also spoken about, and isn't it true that Jesus made a way for us? And so now I can stand in front of God and be sinless and blameless. And I don't need to worry about all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, all that kind of stuff, because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and he paid for all of that. That is true, yes, but that cost Jesus everything. And he says to us daily, take up your cross and follow me. And we can sometimes look at people like Peter and James and think, wouldn't it have been amazing to have, have walked in intimacy with Jesus like that, to have seen and experienced and done the signs and wonders and the things that they did. But following Jesus cost those men their lives, both their livelihood, the things that they did, their jobs and their family, but their physical lives as well. It cost them everything. Uh, I can tell you that following Jesus will cost you everything. The reward for following Jesus is worth it, but the price is everything. And God wants us to, to live in all that he has for us, yes, but the cost of that so often is, is everything. All of your hopes, all of your dreams laid before him. God, I, I want to love you, I want to serve you, and I want to honor you, and I want to give you everything. And his response is, and here's all of me. You have come into my community. We all want to live in this promised land. We want to be a part of God's family. The reward is great, but the price is everything. And we live in this day and age where everybody seems to be a victim. Everybody thinks that they are owed something, that they deserve something. I can tell you that we aren't really owed anything at all, but in fact, we owe everything to Jesus.
Isaiah in his encounter with the Lord says, I live among a people of unclean lips. The book of Acts, which is viewed as the sort of blueprint for church and community and, and all that kind of thing, it, it, it's where the Holy Spirit is poured out and we see the sort of the, the church age begin. And in this moment, Peter stands up having been filled with the Spirit. And he, he, he preaches one of the greatest sermons in history. And in chapter 2, verse 40, it says, With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. I would propose to you that we live in a corrupt generation amongst people with unclean lips. We are people of unclean lips. <clears throat> Later it says, everyone was filled with awe, and this is verse 30, 43, at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. That word awe, it's not very well translated, it's better translated in the King James as fear, and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done. Now, I say this all tent, you know, with a little bit of trepidation, knowing that uh, Tim might correct me and judge me later, so I'm going to attempt some Greek. Um, <clears throat> I can speak a little Afrikaans. Greek is not one of my um, strong points. They didn't write the Bible in Afrikaans originally. The word fear, that word fear, and the Greek word is phobos, and it means fear or panic or to cause alarm. That's the nature of that word. So what's going on in this moment is that God is demonstrating his presence and his power through sign and wonders and everybody is freaking out. It says every soul, everyone who was listening to this and seeing what was going on was struck by this fear and trepidation. What is going on? How amazing is this God? Phobos. But that's not the same word that is used to describe what Moses and Isaiah were experiencing that word, and he has an even greater boldness from me, is a Hebrew word, uh, which I think is pronounced yore, or something like that. And, it's, and this word means afraid, but this is actually the word that implies more awe and reverence. There's, there's two different responses that we see happening with, with an encounter with God, one of fear and trepidation, or one of awe and wonder. I want to propose that we get right with God, that we ensure that we are right with Him, that our account with Him is short, that we are loving Him and being obedient with Him so that when He moves and when we encounter Him, our, our response to Him isn't one of backing away, one of hiding, one of fear and alarm, but it's one of reverence and awe as He comes. And there is, there is a, a promise from God for us as a, as a community, for us as a church, but also for the world. God has said many a time through many a different people, I am coming to encounter with you. I am coming for, and you will see signs and wonders. You will see me move mightily. And so I want to encourage you, be prepared for him to encounter you. Later in Acts 2, 38, it says, sorry, actually it's earlier, Peter replied to them when they asked him what did they need to do. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's something called the normal Christian birth. Repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our repentance, you know, is not a one-off thing. Sometimes we think I've repented, I've, you know, Jesus paid it all, I'm all wonderful. Actually, 
Sometimes we need to refresh our repentance a little bit. Lord, I'm sorry for the way I spoke to my wife yesterday. Actually, I, didn't, I don't think I spoke to her badly yesterday. That's just an example. <laughs> Lord, I'm sorry for, for my hard attitude, for that person who cut me off, whatever it is. We should live in a, in a state of, God, I'm, I'm sorry and I'm thankful. Not woe is me, but God, I want to I please you. I want to be close to you. I want to be intimate with you. We had such a wonderful meeting a few weeks ago when we saw people go through the waters of baptism. What a celebration we had. If you've not been baptized, I want to encourage you to have that conversation with someone. Be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is such a gift to be filled, to be empowered, to be encouraged by the Holy Spirit living inside us. It's the, it's the way we are able to, to go through life. It's the way we're able to, to approach and, and move on in our lives. The gift, the power, the blessing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now what I don't want to do, having said all that, is paint a picture of a God who's really mean and demanding and grumpy. Because while there is a requirement and a desire from him for us to be holy, to be a holy people, he's also a very loving God, he's a very inviting God, he's a very welcoming God. And we started by saying that God's desire and God's plan for us is community. That's what he wants for us. The thing is, we go through these seasons in our lives. You know, this story that we're looking at is the story of the Israelites, a physical, real story of a people living in slavery, moving through a desert and into the promised land. And we, in our lives, will go through seasons in our lives. Sometimes you might feel really enslaved in a season, really worn down. Sometimes you might feel like you're going through a real desert period, really dry, and that God seems really far from you. And I pray frequently and for long periods of time, I hope that you experience seasons of being in the promised land where while circumstances might not you know, all be perfect, you might still have to change tires and have the occasional headache and the snotty nose, but you, you're living under some kind of hand of blessing from the Lord where it just feels like God's blessing and favor is upon you, living in a promised land time. I think for many of us, I would probably put myself in this category, feel like we are probably living in Egypt or in the desert. I want to say to you this morning that God sees and God hears where you are. In Exodus 2.24, it says, God heard their groaning, speaking about the Israelites, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. Four times in the section of scripture that I was given to prepare from this morning, he is referred to or refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we've heard about that being sung today. And what is happening in this moment when he's saying this over and over again, what he's doing is he's reminding Moses that I am the God who hasn't changed. I am the God whose promise is still true. He gave a promise to Abraham that he would move his people into the promised land. And that didn't seem to have been happening. It seemed like the opposite was happening. They were now enslaved in another land. But God was declaring in this moment, Moses, I want you to go and lead this people out because I am the same. My promise still remains. Later, Moses asks him, what do I call you? And he says, I am. I am who I am. I haven't changed. My promise is still true. 
the next verse gives us a glimpse of where Moses himself is in this little journey, what season he himself is in. Moses is a man who was, who was raised a prince of Egypt. He had inheritance and wealth and knowledge and power, and now suddenly he's tending flocks in the desert. And he's so far away from what he probably thought his trajectory was. And all of the skills and knowledge and wisdom that he had, that he had, had growing up suddenly is probably useless. And he's probably thinking to himself, what am I doing here? I'm just, I'm just living in the desert, learning how to tend sheep. But God knew that he needed Moses to know about Egypt, but he also knew that he needed Moses to know about leading a flock in the desert, how to survive and live in the desert. He wouldn't have learned those skills if he was still in the courts of Egypt. Moses was living really far from his calling. You may feel like your calling, your inheritance, the things that you felt God place on your heart are far from you. You may feel lost, enslaved, tested, abandoned, let down, disappointed, angry, confused. You may think your life is pointless and that God has got it wrong and has left you. I think today, God would say to you, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I do not change. My promise for you is still true. And you know, community we're given community to help us walk through those seasons. A bit like what Julian said right in the beginning. We have people who help us, who blow wind in our sails, who, who, who help us when we're limping, who carry weight with us. God gives us a way to walk through these seasons. If you feel like that, if you feel like God has missed you over, I want to encourage you, A, he's looking for you, and B, he has given you people around you to help you through the season you're in. There are um, a few quick observations that maybe don't fit perfectly in what I've been saying that I wanted to make from the text that I was given. And um, it should come up behind me. Uh, so I'm just going to read some verses and, and make a few comments, if that's okay. In... Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, it says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, but their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. When you read the story from beginning, from Abraham through, you'll notice that the Israelites end up in Egypt actually as a blessing and as a promise from the Lord. That There was a time of famine where they needed somewhere to live, and through God's design, they ended up in Egypt, but it actually speaks about how they grew in Egypt. They, they began to flourish there. Their they, they crops grew, their livestock grew, their family grew. They were doing really well. And the Egyptians look at them and they think, these people are going to start to have an impact and an influence in our culture. They may rally against us. So we better rally against them and push them down. And sometimes, I think we find ourselves enslaved in things that we didn't even notice was, we didn't even know was happening. You know, we've been called to have impact and influence in culture around us. We are called to live in this kingdom. You know, God said, Jesus said, go and make disciples of nations. We are called to have an impact in the culture around us. And quite often, if we don't, if we're not vigilant, we will find that the culture around us begins to enslave us until one day we find that all of our freedoms are eroded. 
And that's not a comment about lockdowns or anything like that, because quite often in, in a Western church, we, the biggest place that we find ourselves enslaved is in our mind. Because the way that we think and the things that we say and the things that we long for and dream for are slowly eroded away as circumstances and culture around us tell us that we're wrong. I want to encourage you this morning to consider what has God said to you, what has God promised over you, what do you feel for God and what has enslaved you and stopped you from stepping into the things that he has for you. Jumping ahead a little bit to verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. It says, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, while the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. A bush being on fire in the desert was not a strange thing. A bush being on fire in the desert that didn't burn up was a strange thing. And Moses walked past the bush and and he he had an opportunity to respond in two ways. He could have gone, that's weird, and carried on and stayed well away. But instead he decided to engage with it and to see what was going on. I want to propose to you that God will do stuff in your life and he is going to do stuff in the coming days that might seem weird to you. Don't walk by. Don't discount what is uncomfortable and strange to you Because Moses encountered God after he had engaged. Sometimes we can miss what God has for us because we push things away and we say, well, that's not really my way of doing it. I don't really like that thing. And we fail to receive the encounter with God that he has for us because we've not actually allowed ourselves to to engage. I am, no, there you go. I was suddenly panicking for a moment because I was missing a page. (laughs) In verse 9, sorry, verse 8. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home to a bunch of Ittites which I won't attempt. Verse nine, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. The message translation puts verse 10 in this way. It is time for you to go back. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people of Israel out of Egypt. We don't always understand it. We don't always agree with it. We don't always like it. In fact, we probably don't do any of those things. We probably don't like it. We don't understand it at all and we don't agree with it. But God has a timing for us. And you might endure a season of real struggle and real strain where you feel like you're enslaved, where you feel like you've walked through a desert for years or months. But there is a moment where God will say, my time is now. And he will step into your circumstances. I want to encourage you that God knows and God sees and he is merciful and he will will enable you to walk faithfully, but he has a time where he will step in. Talking about time, I have none. But there are two observations that I'd like to end with. The first one is this. God made a promise that he was going to take his people 
out of slavery, out of Egypt, and bring them into the promised land. But the Israelites walk out of Egypt celebrating. There's a whole chapter about the Song of Moses where they are celebrating what God has done, and they go from this moment of celebrating and looking like God's promise is so close to a season in the desert. I want to propose to you, if God has a promise for you, don't be surprised if it is then tested by a season of, in the desert. And that's not just from this story, that to me seems like a precedent that happens. We see David anointed as king, and next thing he finds himself hiding in a cave from Saul who's trying to kill him. We see the disciples go through periods where the Holy Spirit is poured out, and this looks like the great outbreak, and God's going to change the world, and suddenly they are persecuted and scattered. We see Jesus himself baptized and he comes out of the water and the father audibly to everyone around listening says this is my son who I'm well pleased how amazing and then it says the spirit led him into the desert for 40 days sometimes we have to go through seasons in the desert where we are changed and where God removes things and 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 gives us new skills and new things that he has for us if there are promises that God has spoken over you don't think that they have been forgotten or dismissed because you are living in a season that looks opposite to what he said And there will probably be varying degrees. The greater the call, the greater the promise. Very often the greater the trial and the greater the desert. The second thing is this, and it links to that. It's verse 21 from Exodus chapter 3. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her household for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and your daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. When God makes a promise to you, he does two things. First of all, he resources you for the journey that you're about to go on. The Bible talks about his grace being sufficient for you. He will never call you into something that, and then expect you to do it by yourself. When you rely on him through your seasons, he will sustain you and he will enable you to go through the season that you're going through. But also, I believe God blesses. But the interesting thing with what happens is it says that, he, that, the, that the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. They plundered the enemy. There's a phrase quite often used by evangelists that we need to plunder hell. I don't know if it's a phrase I would use necessarily, but... The sentiment is there. We want, to, we want to bring people into the kingdom. We want to bring people into our community. But this gold and the silver that they plunder from the Egyptians isn't just for them to have health and wealth and well-being. Later on, we see God design for them a habitat for his dwelling, a temple, an ark of the covenant, and what is required for his presence amongst them is the resource that he blessed them with when they left Egypt. They didn't have gold and silver when they left Egypt, so they wouldn't have been able to have built the ark, built the temple. So God gives you resource to allow you and enable you to walk through the seasons that you have, but he also blesses you and resources you so that you are able to build his kingdom. What God gives us is for his glory. We get to steward it, we get to enjoy it, and at the end, its purpose is to resource the kingdom God matures us in the desert for the promise he has given and he provides and blesses so that we can bring glory to him and advance his kingdom and build a God-centered community. I want to end with this thought. God's desire is for community. He is calling us out of our comfort zone, out of our culture, into his community. And the thing that I said right in the middle, the reward is so worthwhile 
but the cost is everything. Why don't you stand? I'm going to pray quickly. If the band want to come up. Father, I thank you that we are part of a chosen people, that you have a plan and a purpose for us as a church, but also for us as individuals. And Father, I thank you for the great privilege that we have to live in community with you and community with others. And Father, I ask that, uh, that you would help us to be focused on you, that you would help us to, to live a life that is holy and pleasing to you, Lord, but also a life that is given for those around us, that we would walk well with those around us, that we would give of ourselves to you and to those around us. Father, would you build a God-centered community in this place? In Jesus' name.